The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, I was on iTunes this week and I was looking back at our podcast to figure out when Dr. Steven started the Luke series, and it was July of 2012. So it's been about three and a half years. And coincidentally, Jesus' earthly ministry is generally thought to span about three and a half years. So now that we're approaching the last week of Jesus, it's been timed perfectly. I think we're, we're really tracking Jesus' life in real time here. So if you listen to the series, I'm sure you'll agree that it's been really good. Um, it's been such a blessing for myself just to even sit in on it. But we're now entering Jerusalem, and this is where everything kind of comes to a head. And the principles and themes that emerge from Jesus' teaching and his uh, narratives and ministry are are now kind of rolling up into some larger, overarching, uh, redemptive themes that we find in the gospel. And I know I'm really looking forward to to seeing how it all comes together. So let's look at the text today. It comes from Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany... At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you. Lord, we confess that we cannot understand your words, Lord, apart from your spirit. So we ask, God, that your spirit would give us understanding. You would give us humble hearts, Lord, to receive uh, from your word. Um, There's so much, Lord, that you have to say. There's so much, Lord, that we need to hear. Um, Help us to hear clearly from you today. For your glory and for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh... About three years ago, 
took my family out to Six Flags, uh, Great America, not too far from here. And a friend of us had gotten us tickets, and, and we'd worked, he had worked for a hospital network, and they had booked the entire park. And so it was, it was the perfect time to go. The weather, I remember, it was, it was a fall day. The weather was cool. It was sunny. There was virtually no lines on any of the big rides. Um, and we were just really enjoying ourselves. I mean, it just couldn't have gone any better. And towards the end of the day, we decided that we were going to hit, you know, one last ride before we left the park. And then I noticed something strange. Like, all of a sudden, there was this zombie-like creature that just started walking around. And before I knew it, we were just surrounded by, like, all these zombies. Apparently, this was, like, a month before Fright Fest. And this was, I don't know, some marketing technique that they wanted to use when children are around. And, and, and literally, the whole, like, all around us was, was characters like this. And we had three, this was, like, three years ago, so our kids were like 10, 7, and 4 at the time. And I remember we were all just kind of like, what, what's going on here? And we just started like walking, uh, you know, more quickly. And there was this bridge, and uh, apparently there was a zombie hiding behind there, and he jumped out right in front of Kim. And he just, Wah! And if you know Kim, she startles pretty easily. I love her, but she startles very easily. And <laughs> she just screamed. She just said, she looked at this guy, and she just screamed, you are evil. <laughs> and she had Tim with her at the time. He was seven. He just started bawling. And Sayla was with me, and she started bawling. And, and we just started to, like, okay, where's the exit? we got to get out of here. And literally, as we're, like, you know, speed walking out of the park, you know, all these zombies are just coming towards us. They think it's, I don't, that's just, I guess that's what they're paid to do. And as they're coming near me, I'm like, you come near me, I'm going to punch you in the face. Don't come near me, I'm going to punch you in the face. And so they just started, like, walking slowly. I mean, these are, like, teenage kids, right? They're probably making minimum wage. But it was such a um, traumatic experience for us because, you know, here we are. It's, it's like 5 o'clock. I mean, there's children around. You're not expecting this. I, mean, I don't know who is in charge of that marketing ploy, but... We, we were tra- traumatized because it wasn't what we were expecting. I mean, we went to the park really wanting to enjoy uh, a nice time with our family, and, and, and this happens, and we couldn't get out of there fast enough. And I think, you know, that's, um, that's a picture of, of, of the Christian life in some ways. You know, it, we go into it, and we think, you know, now that we're saved, we know the Lord, uh, it's going to be smooth sailing from here. You know, God is good. He's going to bless me. It's just going to be picture perfect. And then all of a sudden, we begin to experience these hardships, right? Totally unexpected, and it's just one after the other, all around us, surrounding us. And we're getting pressed in on every side. And God doesn't just appear silent. He, he just he seems absent, right? And we want to scream, you, know, you are evil. If it's not at the zombies, it's even a God himself. And I think this is the existential dilemma of every Christian. Um, you know, they face this at every, we face this at, every, um, at some point in our life, in our journey of faith. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, what happens when it seems as if God has turned his back on you? When there's a vast disconnect between what you believe God has promised for you and what you're experiencing in this life. Do you just reject him in utter disappointment? Or is it possible that somehow we've misunderstood his will 
because we're in such blind pursuit of our own agenda. Uh, you know, growing up in the church, Palm Sunday always seemed to be a happy day, right? It's a time of celebration, just as it was in Jerusalem. But on the surface, everything looked perfect. Everyone's honoring Jesus. You know, they're singing the right songs. They're saying the right things. They're throwing down their cloaks. They're waving palm branches. And I, I think the disciples were thinking, look, we've, we made it. This is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. You know, finally, we're getting some respect. Right? Jesus is going to snuff out the Romans. He's going to put the Pharisees in their place. And they're probably rubbing their hands together and thinking, you know, when he takes the throne, I wonder, is he going to have me sit on his right side or his left? You know, and they had their own agenda. The disciples did. What, were the, what was going through the minds of the people on that day? Waving their palm branches. He's finally here, the Messiah. The one we've been waiting for. He's going to make all that is wrong right. He's going to solve all our problems. You know, I think the people, too, they had their own agenda that day. You know, I remember, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to skip through some of these slides. I remember when Obama was running for president, there was a video that was circulating of, of uh, this woman on the Internet, and she was so happy that she was in tears. And she, was, she said, I can't believe a black man is going to be a pres- the president of the United States. He's going to get me a new cell phone. And <laughs> that's why she was crying, tears of joy. And we could laugh, but we often treat God in that same way, don't we? Like the crowds on Palm Sunday, we're so quick to, to give him worship and honor when we think he's going to serve our interests. He's going to get us what we need. He's going to solve our problems. And, you know, this section of Scripture is often entitled, in many versions, The Triumphal Entry. The Triumphal Entry. But I think it would be more fitting to call it The Triumphal Tragedy. Because even though Jesus enters Jerusalem to all these people full of joy, all these sounds of celebration, it concludes with him full of sorrow and weeping. And what they see as a moment of triumph, Jesus sees as a great tragedy. Why is this? See, Jesus sees something that no one else can see at that moment, not even his own disciples. In just a matter of days, the same people that were lifting palm branches, waving them and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, they'll be shaking their fists, shouting, crucify, crucify him. They would reject him as king. And they would bring judgment upon themselves. You know, historians tell us that just as Jesus prophesied, by AD 70, less than a span of 40 years, a single generation that the city would lie in utter ruins. Men, women, children, all slaughtered. The temple would be desecrated. And in the city, not one stone would lie on top of another. Jesus knows this. And so he weeps. You know, and it, it begs the question, what, what happened on that week, that Passion Week? It started out so great. What could have caused such a drastic turn of events? How did Jesus disappoint his people so profoundly that they would turn against him so violently, so quickly? Why were the Jews unable to see God's will and God's heart for them? You know, I, th- I think it must have looked so strange to see Jesus weeping in the midst of this joyous celebration. 
It's such a dramatic contrast of emotions, isn't it? But I think this contrast highlights just how wide the gap of understanding was between God's will for his people and the people's will for God. You see, God's people, they longed for his kingdom to come. They really did. Perhaps just as much as even Jesus did. But they were unable to recognize the king and see the kingdom because they never really bothered to stop and listen when Jesus spoke to them of when it would come, of how it would come, and what the nature of this kingdom would be. And that's why they missed it. They were too blinded by their own will, pursuing their own agenda. And so really they got all three questions wrong. And this is what would lead to their ultimate rejection of God's Son, of the Messiah. And I think we too experience a deep disappointment with God when when He does not come when we want, how we want, or with what we want. But can I suggest this morning that Like the Jews in Jesus' day, maybe we're unable to see his heart and will for us because we're in such hot pursuit of our own will. And so God may not come when we want. I think as a believer, it's important to understand that when Jesus is arriving on this scene, there's excitement building. It seems that the kingdom has arrived because the king is here. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's forgiving sins. But the fullness of the kingdom is not here yet. These are just glimpses of a kingdom that's yet to come. You know, last week, Dr. Steve preached on the parable of the ten minas. And he mentioned this already, but I think it's, it's worth repeating today. You know, in setting up this parable, Luke does a, us a huge favor in that he explains why Jesus teaches this parable at this particular moment. And it says in Luke 19, 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Immediately. And so even in Jericho, the crowds, they had this false expectation that once Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was game over, right? The king was going to set up his final kingdom. And it was, it, was, it was all going to conclude right then and there. Jesus knew this. And it's with this particular parable, he wanted to um, reset their expectations. You know, when I, when I worked in the corporate world, I was on a sales team. Um, and I had to, to uh, work with a lot of clients who were in the process of closing commercial real estate loans. And some of these loans were like in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, they were big loans. So there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of stress to get it done on time and to deliver. But something would always come up. I mean, you have a massive checklist of things that need to get done. And something would always come up and throw a wrench in the closing process. And it was up to us on the sales side to, to uh, relay that news to the borrower. You know, the closing was going to be delayed. And we had a word for that. We, we said managing expectations, right? He had to manage expectations. And so that was the job of our team often. We had to call the client and manage their expectations and tell them, you know, the closing is not going to happen as, as soon as, you know, we'd plan or as soon as they think. And I kind of feel like that right now when someone asks me, you know, when are we going to move to NPC? And I say, yeah, at this point I'm just telling people I'm pretty sure it's going to happen before 
the end of the year. So just trying to manage your expectations. Sorry for keep delaying the installation day. I don't just, I'll call you, don't call me. <laughs> but this was what Jesus was doing in his parable. You know, these people were so eager to crown him as king and to see him build his physical kingdom right here, right now. And he knew this. He saw this. And so he teaches this parable to manage their expectations. And he uses very plain language, telling them that the kingdom they expected wasn't going to come right then, right there. So they, they wouldn't be discouraged by his delay, but they would be found faithful upon his return. And so I think to avoid the same disappointment with God, we also need to recognize that he may not always come when we want. He may not always come when we want. This doesn't mean that we can't be honest with God when our frust- with, you know, about our frustrations when we're waiting on him. Now, how many of the Psalms begin with this desperate plea, how long, how long, O oh Lord? But it's about managing this expectation, which allows us to be faithful, whether he comes today, tomorrow, next week, years, not in my lifetime, centuries. Can we trust him enough to wait on him, even when he doesn't come when we want? But it's just not, not just that God may not come when we want. I think we also experience disappointment with God when he doesn't come how we want, in the ways that we want. So God does not always come in the way that, in how we want. Not just when we want, but God may not always come how we want. You know, Luke spends no less than seven verses uh, explaining Jesus' very careful instructions on how he was going to arrive in Jerusalem. And there's something here that I think shouldn't be missed. Because for years now, Jesus has told uh, those that he healed to just keep it on the down low. All right, don't go announcing that you got healed. Right? And he almost seems to be coy at times about his identity. And he doesn't want to present himself, at least at that moment, as the Messiah and the King. And yet, when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he takes some very deliberate measures to do exactly that, doesn't he? And here's the irony. In this long-awaited moment, Jesus goes against all conventional wisdom, and he doesn't choose a majestic, a muscular war horse. Right? We find that um, he chooses a donkey. You see, a war horse would have signified that he was coming to subjugate the city. He's coming to rule over it. But in that day, coming into a city on the colt of a donkey signified that he was coming in peace. He was coming in peace. And I think this entire act is consistent with his entire first coming, that the king would be meek, he would be humble, he would be gentle, riding on a donkey. And he wouldn't come and lord over his people through pure force of will and the power of his might. But instead, he would come to serve and to suffer and to even die and draw people to himself through the power of his love. And this is the paradox of the cross. You know, that life would come through death. Victory would come through surrender. And that glory would come through humility. And the Jews and even the disciples, they they could not wrap their minds around this. 
to them, there was only one way to build a kingdom. It's the only way that they saw any other of these pagan nations build a kingdom around them. It was through sheer force of will, brute strength. And so when this divinely anointed miracle worker comes along, they thought, this is the man. He's going to do it. He's got the power. He's got the charisma. And even as he's passing by, they're shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Which means, save us! Save us! They desperately wanted to be saved. But not in the way that God wanted to save them. You see, they they missed it because they saw only what they wanted to see. And how many times in the Gospels does Jesus tell his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die? And yet, when it happens, all the disciples, they just scatter in shock. It's like, we didn't see this coming. (laughs) But just like disciples, the disciples, I think we too have our own agendas. We want God to get on board with ours. We want to dictate how God should achieve his glory and tell him how he should rule the world and and run our lives. We want God to flex his omnipotent muscle. We want to bless us, don't we? And so we don't just question when God acts. We also question how he acts. How he acts. Um, You know, when when Kim was diagnosed with cancer four years ago, um, there were a couple boys that... Uh, were diagnosed um, around the same time as we were. One of them was a boy that went to um, a church that we went to for a long time um, in Wheeling, and he was actually a child that Kim um, was a Sunday school teacher of. And he was 17 at the time, four years ago. His name was Andrew. And he needed a bone marrow transplant. And literally, he was diagnosed the same week that Kim was. And um, we thought, wow, you know, we're going to do this together. Uh, we're going to fight this cancer together. There's a reason why, um, you know, we both got diagnosed at the same time. And so um, at the time, Kim didn't need a bone marrow transplant, but, but Andrew did. And we became aware of another boy named Connor who was um, about seven years old at the time. And he needed a bone marrow transplant too. And so I just felt this, like the Lord was just calling us to, to do what we could to help these two boys and so as much as we could, we just tried to get the word out and raise awareness. Like, we need, to, we need people to, to, um, to volunteer, to become donors, um, especially Asians. For some reason, among Asians, it's just really low. Um, the, the registration is really low. And so there's so many Asians out there that are looking for a bone marrow transplant. And so during the course of Kim's chemo, you know, it happened so quickly. It was She was diagnosed in January, and then before we knew it, in April and May, she was in remission. And these boys, right around that time, they they found matches. Connor had been looking for five years, and all of a sudden he had found a match. And Andrew had been looking for a match as well, and he found a match. And it was just all coming together. And we're like, wow, the Lord is is really going to do something incredible here. And, uh, you know, I really believe in my heart that the Lord was going to heal those boys and, you know, come July, they get their bone marrow transplant. And come that summer, um, by July, Andrew had passed away. He had gotten his transplant, and it, it didn't take, and it went really bad. And, and he, ended up, um, he ended up going to be with the Lord. And Connor, he, 
he had a transplant. He'd been waiting for five years and finally found a match, and, and his didn't take. And he's still with us today, but he's, they're struggling. I don't, I don't even know if, if they're going to pursue another, uh, another match. And I remember thinking, you know, this is not how it's supposed to happen. You know, God, I, I thought you were going to glorify yourself by healing these boys. I mean, why would you even find a match for them if it wasn't going to heal them? And I was so disappointed with God. And literally for, for like a year, I just, you know, I don't know if it was survivor's guilt, but it was such a struggle to, to think about, you know, these boys and why the Lord healed Kim and, and yet these boys he didn't heal. And we have those moments in life, I think, when we question when God acts, how he acts, and we want to dictate for ourselves. We want to play God. And yet, I think it's so important to realize that God may not always come when we want. He may not always come how he wants. But we also experience disappointment when God does not come with what we want. With what we want. The Jews knew that they wanted a Messiah. But what they really wanted was what the Messiah was going to bring. He was going to bring peace. He was going to bring prosperity. But they missed him. And I think the Jews, they make very easy targets, right? It's easy for us to think, well, if I was there, and if I saw Jesus performing all those miracles, I know I would have recognized him as the Messiah right away. But I think we need to just put ourselves in their shoes for a moment because imagine if all you ever knew, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, generation upon generation, even before them, for up to a thousand years, what if all you and your family line ever, line ever knew was oppression and living under the rule of another heathen nation? You know, for the Jews, it wasn't just the Romans. You know, before that, it was the Babylonians. Before that, it was the Assyrians. Before that, it was the Egyptians. And so they have this long ancestral history where there's this oppression. And so you can understand why they have such an incredible longing for a Savior, why they would cry out Hosanna on that day. All they wanted was to experience the freedom that we often take so for granted here in America, don't we? They just wanted peace. They wanted the peace that they thought the Messiah was going to bring them. And this is why, even as Jesus is entering, they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They thought peace was finally coming. Now, shortly after Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, um, instead of kicking the Romans out of Jerusalem, what does Jesus do? He kicks the money changers out of the temple. What's going on? This is supposed to be the Messiah. That's not what we need. And so they become utterly confused. He can't be the one. And so they desperately wanted Jesus to usurp the powers that be. They wanted him to establish a physical kingdom. They wanted him to exercise his divine authority and bring about peace. And this longing for peace continues among Jews even today. 
They greet each other, the word shalom, which means peace. It's that longing for peace that they desire. But they miss the peace that he would bring, and they find themselves bitterly disappointed. Jesus did, in fact, come to bring peace, but it wasn't peace with Rome. It was peace with God. And he says, would that you, Jesus says, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. That truly is tragic, isn't it? It's so ironic. God always wanted to give the people, his people, the desires of their heart. He wanted peace for them, just as they wanted peace for themselves. But for the Jews, they thought their biggest obstruction to peace was the Romans, when in reality, the only thing that was keeping them from true peace was a sin which separated them from God. What if the greatest problems in my life are not the evil things which lie on the outside, the things which are happening to me? What if the greatest problem in my life is the evil and the sin that resides inside of me? No, God has come to bring us peace. Not with the things on the outside, the things on the inside. And if you want to experience God's peace in your life, then this is the faith with which we need to live. We need to trust that he does not come when we want all the time, but he will be here. He will be here in my moment of need. He does not always come how I want, but he will come to me how I need. And he doesn't always come with what I want, but he will always come with what I need. Now I want to close today's message by telling you about um, a little girl named Ava, Ava Lee. And she's an incredible young lady uh, that we became acquainted with and because she's a cancer fighter. And I know there are a number of you here who know her and her family. She's only six years old, but she's really an old soul. It's such a blessing to, to know her and, and her family. But when I think about, you know, what it means to have a childlike faith, I, I, think, of, I think of her. And about a year and a half ago, she was diagnosed with a very unique form of leukemia. And she received a bone marrow transplant last year. And everything was looking really good. But her family recently discovered that she had relapsed. And it's just crushing, it's just crushing news. And I want to show you just a very brief video of Ava. And I want to read a, a blog entry that her mother, Esther, wrote. And she gave me permission to share this. It's a little bit long, but if you just bear with me, I think, um, you know, it really speaks to some of these things. Like, how do we respond when God um, does not come when we want, how we want, or maybe even with what we want? And if you had a chance to read her blog, I really commend it to you. And just ask that you please pray for her and her family as they continue their journey here. Hi, everyone. <clears throat> Today I'm at the clinic, and I'm gonna, I just got my, um, my blood pulled, and I'm going to get my line removal today. And this is a song I've been singing. I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. 
I just want to read this, um, this excerpt from a blog entry that Esther, her mother, wrote um, in December of last year, just a couple months ago. She woke up whimpering last night, and we gently shook her awake. What's wrong, Ava? we asked. She told us about the nightmare that had been plaguing her for some time now. You were on one plane, and I was on another, and I wanted to be with you, she explained. Are there words in our English vocabulary to explain this type of searing pain? If there is, I don't know them. I must learn them because I will need them. After a bone marrow biopsy on Monday, we waited impatiently for her results. On Tuesday, we got the call that there was a small amount of detectable detectable disease in her marrow. I want to end this post here because my temporary hopelessness calls out that it doesn't really matter what I say after this. There are options, there are therapies, but the truth is Ava has fought long and hard already, and the cancer has come back. It seems cruel that Ava has relapsed in her skin, because for most of her life she had such severe eczema that her skin was rough and cracked to the touch. After the transplant, her skin was so silky smooth that we couldn't stop stroking her cheeks and kissing her face. And then to find a life-sucking, hope-crushing cyst there. Oh God, what more could you want from our story? What more can be milked out from this experience? Will this chapter end only when Ava has died? Will it really be a lifetime of sorrow before we see the light and the beauty of your works? I have been wondering if God's eyes are truly on us. I know in my heart that we are ever in his sight, but my human heart stumbles at this point. I find myself praying, God, do you see us? We wipe her swollen herpes infected with a tissue. God, do you see us? We brush our fingers under her chin to feel those sickening bumps. God, do you see us? We watch her struggle to play, although her body is weak from fighting off this virus. God, do you see us? We strap her into the car in the cold hours of the morning to go to the ER. God, do you see us? We tell her she looks beautiful when she asks if her eye makes her look strange. God, oh God, do you see us? We haven't told Ava yet. We don't know how to do this. As if our hearts are not broken enough, it's up to us to look in her eyes and tell her she's not done with this fight yet. As much pain as we feel, I will never fully know how difficult this journey has been for her and how much it will hurt her spirit when we tell her. But I hope that it will be enough for her to hear that we love her and that we will never, ever forsake her. And then I'm reminded that God loves us more, that his love is perfect and that his promises are true. He loves us and his goodness will be seen. But I'm still flailing in the dark, trying to grab something tangible that will allow us to come up and breathe again. I'm wondering if maybe our hope for cure in this lifetime won't come to pass and we will have to look toward the hope of heaven. How we will endure the many, many years without our girl, Ava. How we will stay standing when she is gone seems impossible. We've called out to him asking that this cup be removed from our lives. It is too bitter to drink. We've made compromises that he cut our lives short and instead add more and more years to her. Right now there is silence, and so we wait. My restless heart is searching here and there. Who can help us out of this mess? 
I want to run away from this situation, but there's nowhere to go. Please bring us into your temple and comfort us with the truth that you are near and that you have seen us because we are lost at sea, O Lord. Please guide us home. Here's bow in prayer for a moment as the worship team comes. We're going to spend just a moment in prayer here. We're going to sing a song and then we're going to partake in the communion. I couldn't think of a better example of what faith looks like in the midst of crushing disappointment with God than Ava and her mother, Esther. What do you do when his will seems so far apart from yours? How do you respond? Do you reject him as God and cry out, crucify Or do you press further into him, trusting that God is good even when life is not? Even when we cannot understand the when, the how, the what he is doing in our lives, can we still pray as Jesus called us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Life is hard. It's much too hard to live apart from God and apart from his will. His desire is that we know his will, that we understand his heart for us. So let's just take a moment in prayer.